0: Hi again, everybody. It's me, JR Mann. Welcome to another edition of your Life's Work podcast. How are you? Big show today, Ched Myers. It is it is going to be hard <laughs> to not drop the F-bomb a few times while I introduce this guy because uh, he's a rock star. He uh, He's influenced my work greatly. Now, in certain circles, he's, he's just a bona fide rock star. He's kind of like the Steven Tyler of spiritual... Theology stuff, Uh, you know. You you picture this guy like you know, like grabbing a podium and like rocking it back and forth, and then flipping off the front row for not listening. (laughs) I don't know, man. I don't know him. I've never met him. I've only read his stuff. I I record this. I record this introduction purposely before I talk to him because I just want to see how different uh it will be on the other side of this but his work has influenced me greatly and i know influenced thousands if not millions of people he wrote a book that kind of got him on the map called binding the strong man and it's a political reading of mark's story of jesus and it's just great shit if you are into jesus and into that kind of political reading and really understanding jesus out of the Disneyfication or the unicorn and fairies Jesus that we've all <laughs> grown up with, um, you're going to get a real shot at who Jesus is through this book. He also There's also a book that slides alongside of Binding the Strongman that um, he put out to kind of help us normal people <laughs> into Mark, which is called uh, Say to This Mountain. It's just an easier, more digestible version of Binding the Strongman because Binding the Strongman is like, like spiritual chemistry. And then his his second book, um, same topic, but just a, a little bit more easier to understand. Not that the first book is not. I think you should buy it. You, you definitely have it. Uh, anyway, he's a speaker and writer, and uh, he's got uh, you know programs. You can, you, you can go hang out with him. I'm pretty sure you can, and we'll, and we'll ask him. And, he's, and he also has got a project burning right now that I think they're about to publish, which uh, speaks very um, poignantly to the times that we're in. So, listen, this is a guy that I'm nervous to talk to. (laughs) Imagine me nervous to talk to anybody, right? I'm super, super nervous to talk to this guy right now, but uh, really looking forward to it. I'm blessed to have his time. Here is Jed Myers. Okay, so we're, I mean, this is like crazy times. Pandemic, social unrest, what, what are we doing here? Like, you know, there's so many voices happening right now. And I would imagine, you know, some of the kind of the cadence of what you're seeing, particularly in this country are things you've seen before. Um, you know, obviously different circumstances. Cause you know, given what happened in Minneapolis a few weeks ago, it's absolutely horrid obviously. But what is that one thing you know, you, you, you've you been telling people or talking to people about the what to do in times like these.
1: Well, uh <clears throat> you know, I'm 65 and uh, so this uh, last month was the third time in my life that I've seen the city of my birth, Los Angeles, um, in flames because of uh, rage over police, uh, violence against black men. Uh, first time was 1965, the Watts uprising. Second time was 1992, uh, the Los Angeles uprising, which was the largest civil disturbance in the history of the U.S. Um, and, uh, and now this, you know, the latest string and the latest example, George Floyd in a, in a yet another string of, of, uh, violations and violence so um it ought to be pretty clear to anyone who's paying attention that um that we are we are haunted by the history and legacy of uh dehumanization of black people and violence against black bodies uh, in this country um i i was uh Impressed uh, that the the pastor who is um, at Ebenezer Baptist Church um, was talking about this and talked about the fact that uh, we're we're dealing with a, a double pandemic, um, and that is. Um, Covid nineteen and sixteen nineteen, um, and I thought that that was um, uh, Raphael Warnock's, you know, in, in Dr. King's historic pulpit there in Atlanta, um, naming this this double um, virus. Uh, not only the, the coronavirus that has us all locked down, but in a in a more profound way, the way in which the, the virus of racism, which landed on the U.S. stores shores in 1619, we just commemorated the 400th anniversary of that last year. Um, how this continues to impact our, our body politic. And because our body politic is sick with this virus, um, we keep um, criminalizing and brutalizing black political bodies. Um, so, you, you know... The the corona pandemic has um, allowed a lot of folks to kind of take a a, a, a pause and, and look at how we live individually and collectively. Um, the, the The George Floyd incident uh, I think has um, allowed us to um again, try to confront this other pandemic. so it's it's my hope that uh, and and there are there are signs uh, that we are um, we are looking at a at a new moment. Um, Van Jones last week said it's a it's a great awakening. Um, i I hope that's true. Um, you know, obviously, He was riffing on the old evangelical religious history of the US where every 40 years during the colonial era, there was some sort of evangelical awakening, um, the Puritans and the Methodists and so on. Uh, Is this another great awakening? Um, it has the signs of that right now. Um, a lot of people are, are paying attention. Um it's also true that white folks um have a short attention span um one of my favorite signs being held at these rallies is uh, george floyd isn't a wake-up call the same alarm has been ringing since 1619 y'all just keep hitting snooze right.
2: um
1: and uh you know we we, we carry a lot of privileges as, as white folks in choosing to think or not to think about race um, Black Lives T-shirts uh, can be taken off as easily as they can be put on. Um, we can carry protest signs till we're tired and then put them down. Uh, that's those are signs of our privilege, and so it, it, you know we're in a struggle, as we always are, between the um, the ambivalence of privilege and the um and the awakening. Um, so I think there are signs that there's a huge awakening. It's certainly evident in the media. It's evident on the streets, It's even uh, evident among um, some political personalities and, and structures. Uh, the fact that we're having conversations about um, defunding the police is, you I know, mean, I, I would not have anticipated that
2: yeah um, <laughs> right two months ago right
1: so so it's a it's a really it's it's a good time um i i really uh resonate with um, the notion that um, you know this isn't things aren't getting worse they're just getting uncovered um and and so I think we need to keep keep trying to uncover things. That's uh, sort that's of appropriately po- apocalyptic worldview from a biblical point of view. Yeah. Um, so yeah, in- interesting times.
0: Yeah, you um, you know, obviously radical discipleship is kind of your gig. How in uh, in in the introduction before you and I started chatting, I talked about binding the strong man and then uh, say this to my mo- or or say say to this mountain how does radical discipleship kind of fit into this moment of protest for people that are hanging their hats on Christ or even for the evangelicals for that matter that at times seem to be you know head stuck in sand on a lot of these issues what what is the advice or the kind of the fuel or methodology to the radical discipleship um you know, movement, or disciple who just wants to do something, but also wants to really hold to the tenets of what, you know, Jesus gave us?
1: Well, you know, the the genealogy of of radical discipleship is both very old and relatively contemporary. It's old in the sense that uh, the history of Christianity, and for that matter the history of um, uh, the, the Jewish people, in the hebrew bible is constantly marked by um prophets and um troublemakers who keep trying to bring people back to the root of their faith right that's what the word radical means it comes from the latin radix which means roots and so um we we you know, the, the whole history of of the people of god both jewish and christian is um marked by chapters of renewal that is usually sparked by people who are trying to go back to the roots um, in a moment where the people have have forgotten what this vision is all about. And this is usually as a result of some sort of apostasy around um, disparity between rich people and poor people, or violence of one people against another, or oppression or exclusion of some kind or another. Um, Those are all classic expressions of um, worshipping idols. Uh, So, so, you know, whether it's uh, the desert fathers and mothers of the 4th and 5th centuries uh, during the Roman Empire, or it's the Franciscan movement of the 11th century, or uh, the (coughs) Anabaptists of the 16th century, the Radical Reformation, or the Methodist movement of the 19th century, or the Catholic worker movement of the 20th century, it, it, you know, you have always the edges of conscience uh, in in the church that are trying to call uh, believers back to their roots. Now, in in, um, in the mid-70s, 1976, there was a major evangelical gathering in Lausanne, Switzerland, um, which attempted to, you know, make this big declaration, um, calling for the whole gospel for uh the whole person for the whole world. And that was a good soundbite, but um evangelicals <laughs> in the mid nineteen seventies weren't actually embodying that. They You're were right. quite content to overlook um racism, they were um, quite content to overlook the ongoing wars in Indochina. They were quite content to overlook the Disparity, uh, economic and social disparities in the U.S. Uh, And so at that point in the mid-70s, a group of evangelical, quote, radicals, that is people wanting to uh, revisit the roots of faith, um, started calling for uh, a a discipleship to go to the roots. And that's where the the contemporary term radical discipleship comes from. Now, I have the great privilege of being... um, Called to the faith and mentored by some of the original authors of that call to radical discipleship, and um, I'm uh, <clears throat> both sad and proud. I suppose to say that it has never actually gained traction as a popular soundbite, uh, which is probably good. It hasn't gotten commodified. Nobody's made any money off of it. <laughs>
2: right.
1: um, but it, the, the, the phrase "radical discipleship" is still the, the sort of flag under which I march because it seems to be um, accurate. That is, um, it calls us to go to the roots of things, not only um, the roots of our tradition, our faith, but also the roots of the issues that we face. So we're not just reacting to symptoms, but we're trying to get at root causes. So that seems an an accurate vocation. Um, And I like the term discipleship because it, has to do with practice, right? It's not just yeah. doctrines we hold in our heads or spiritual thoughts we hold in our hearts, but it has to do with what uh our hands and feet are about and and I like it because the root word is is discipline, um and and discipleship to be sustained over a long period of time takes both um spiritual disciplines and economic disciplines and social disciplines um and and so to me there there is no better um short description of what jesus calls us to um so i've you know tried to be part of that that voice at the margins of the church that is calling folks to um, move uh, move Beyond faith as decisionism, right? A big existential crisis, and then it's all over, and you're saved. On one hand, or um, doc- dogmatism—you know, you got to yeah. memorize certain certain ideas, and then and then you're good. Or denominationalism, right? You just kind of cruise along um, in a church, but but it's not really doing much to change your life. I think discipleship is, is a much better way to understand the meaning of faith today. So yeah, um, yeah, that's that's why we orient our
2: work
0: that way. The um, I, I I'm I'm struck at the idea that, and I like you, I I get really bummed out that the radical discipleship hasn't, like you know, found its supersonic jet and and and, and really you know gained. Altitude and fly hard. I was involved in a super radical ministry twenty years, well, less than twenty years ago, but and we were we were first excluded by the by the quote unquote church. Then we were invited into the quote unquote church. Um, But it never this idea of doing things outside the walls or doing things outside the the dogma or doing things outside the process never seemed to really. You know, take hold in in a very in in a, in a bunch of different corners of of how people were doing things. Whether it was getting arrested at a rally, you, you know, making sure justice was heard, or you know, working porn shows, it, it it's it's uh it it is amazing to me. Why do we struggle so hard to just engage that radical discipleship and allow that thing to breathe? What is that?
1: Well, I mean, there, there's nothing new about that, folks. Uh, you, you look at the call of Isaiah, famously in Isaiah 5, where he's uh, has has this vision in Isaiah 6, I guess it is, um, of of the temple being filled, and then receives the call, and the call is very clear. Um, people are not going to have eyes to see. Uh, what you're trying to show them and people are not going to have ears to hear what you're trying to tell them because if they did see and hear it, they would have to change. Um, so that, that's kind of an old diagnosis of human of, stuckness that um, to, <clears throat> you know, whether it's mystical illumination or political consciousness, um, or preferably both. Both demand that we change businesses as, as usual, personally right. and politically, and,
2: yeah.
1: and that's that's hard for folks, particularly hard for comfortable folks. And let's face it, in North America, most white Christians are uh, fairly comfortable. Yeah. Uh, so so there's a lot of resistance to change, but that you know our tradition. The prophetic tradition in scripture in both testaments is well resourced to to deal with that because um that's that's been the case so we we have a discourse of repentance which as you know means to turn around um and change We I mean, we have a discourse of self-examination we have a, a discourse of uh, listening to the voice of the outsider it's, it's right at the core of our tradition. So we we shouldn't have as hard a time in our churches as we do um, trying to embody that. Uh, but, you know, our churches are institutionalized over many, many uh, centuries, and we've um, spent a lot of time um, Theological um, energy, trying to suppress um, that part of the gospel that challenges us directly. Uh, we've we've domesticated the gospel, and so uh, you know one of our tasks in the radical discipleship movement is to try to undomesticate the gospel so that we can be undomesticated by the gospel, and that that that's why. These re of scripture are are so important, um, as opposed to a lot of post-evangelicals who become disillusioned, and there's lots of reason to, to be disillusioned by our churches. Um, but uh, they just kind of react and throw throw the whole tradition out, rather than struggling for it. Um, right. And uh, and so you know, even though people tend to see folks like us as troublemakers um, we, we are we, we do understand ourselves as fighting for the heart and soul of what it means to be church
0: yeah yeah the if um it, you know and you run in I mean you run in obviously in some pretty wild circles if people are out there the disillusioned and perhaps you know they're listening to you or they're listening to me or they're you know, you know, Shane Claiborne fans or, you know, whatever. Are there people out there that you would recommend folks that are in transition or transformation of their own faith or, you know, they're like, F it, I don't want to go to church anymore. Are, are there are there a few folks off the top of your head that you could share with people that, hey, go read, hey, go listen to? Well,
1: I'm, I'm sure that you've spent quite a bit of time helping folks connect up with voices like that. I, I think more important than finding a a guru or a a prominent voice is to ask yourself, and now I'm talking particularly to the so-called post-Christian, to ask yourself, all right, it's it's one thing to um, deconstruct a tradition that has been problematic or has been oppressive or has been um, with which you've become disillusioned. But the real challenge is, what are you going to replace it with? Uh, how are you going to reconstruct yeah. a faith? And and I find a lot of um, uh, <laughs> folks who are exiting from church um, are just kind of sliding on that question and keep licking their wounds about how the church hurt them or how they just can't buy X, Y, and Z anymore. Um, but aren't really asking the question, okay, so you don't believe that. What is it that, what are going to be the structures of, of your convictions? Um, now, my, my uh, teacher, James MacLennan, great uh, narrative theologian of the last quarter of the 20th century, Baptist theologian, um, talks about faith as the examination of one's convictions. Um, not, not one's opinions about God or about life or about heaven or whatever. Um, he said opinions are cheap. You can change them and nothing else in your life has to change. Um, but convictions are what we live by, literally. Uh, and if you change your convictions, you actually have to change how you live. So my question to post-Christians is, uh, how, how is this change in convictions affecting their life? Does it mean you're just now have your Sundays to yourself to drink coffee and take <laughs> bike rides? Um, right. or, or is it a more profound way of living differently? Right. And, and that's the question that they have to answer. And if, um, if they want to, uh, examine, uh, the Christian tradition and to see if there's anything of more substance there. There's plenty in Christian history and Christian literature and in theology and practice uh, to commend it. But if if you're just interested in fashioning yourself as a victim of, of bad religion, well,
2: yeah. Yeah. there's a hell
1: of a lot of bad religion, including a bad religion of secular um, self-righteousness. Yeah. Um, so – you know, there, there's no neutrality on a moving train, and, and we are in a in a time where things are moving, and we need folks on the ground who know who they are, know what they're about, know what their convictions are, and who are ready to struggle. Um, and being post something doesn't actually say what you are; it only says what you're not. Yeah. Uh, we, we need to we need to be to be working with folks who who know who they are and what they're struggling for.
0: Yeah, I love that. I love that. Know who you are and be willing to struggle or be willing to work through the struggle. I I mean, I think that's that's really, really, really key. Um, and I and I appreciate that. And I also appreciate you, <laughs> you know, going away from the names that people should follow to really, uh, you know, testing their own hearts and testing their own minds on what the next season or transformation is. That's uh, that's stellar. Um, lesson. It's a great lesson for me. I appreciate that so much. Um, I I've gotten so much out of uh, binding the strong man, which I call spiritual chemistry. Um, you know, it's like taking a chemistry class. Uh, it's like you kind of get what you're reading, and then all of a sudden, you know, you're talking about stuff that you're like. You have to go over and reread nine times, which which is why I say thank God for say this to the mountain. And I don't know if anybody's ever told you, <laughs> hey, thank you for that. <laughs> for for us for us normal folks, um, you know, say say to this mountain was definitely the uh, kind of breach of consciousness that I need, needed coming off of binding the strong man. How how has both of those books affected Your face, like when I read these books, I go, "Okay, this is great; it's juicing me up." But what did it do to you? It must have like, (laughs) it must have screwed you up pretty good at some point. (laughs) Well,
1: you know, um, I wrote the the original commentary on Mark's Gospel, "Binding the Strong Man," at a stage in my life where I was deeply involved in discipleship community and social movements. Um, and that, that book came out of the perspective of, uh, in, in the mid eighties of, um, folks who, who were trying to bear witness, um, within the American empire to the values of nonviolence and economic justice and, um, Racial equity and so on, but it also seemed to me, as you know, as a seminarian, that how we read the scripture was uh, a key arena of struggle. And so, historically, in in biblical studies in the twentieth century, uh, if you wanted to test out a new methodology, I, you had to test it on Mark's Gospel as our first, historically first gospel. And so I felt I needed to do the math um, and um, try to sh- make that argument across the whole text of Mark um, and make a methodological argument. And obviously that means that
2: you get into the weeds a bit and it, it, it's a hard <laughs> book
1: to, to read, as, as you found. So that's precisely why we wrote a um a more popular version of it so that it could, um, we could sort of take the results of that reading without having to show all the math exegetically and so on. And uh, and, and, so, and then I teamed up with some colleagues to do that. But between those two books, Binding the Strong Man and Fate of this Mountain, um, I wrote a book called Who Will Roll Away the Stone, which was really part two to Binding the Strong Man, right, right. Which, um, which focused on okay, this is what I think this means for me and for us in this context in this historical moment so i wrote that book um during the first gulf war in 1991 during the los angeles uprising that i mentioned a while ago um, in 1992 and during the columbus quincentenary the 500th commemoration of columbus landing in the americas those were three sort of moments in the first half of the 90s um, which were kind of apocalyptic in the sense of unveiling things, um, and so I wrote this book about what I think radical discipleship means for North American Christians. Um, that's that's a book people didn't read because it was too practical. People <laughs> liked the Bible. People liked the Bible study, but they didn't much like the application.
2: Right. Um, right.
1: So, but that was a trilogy of books uh, over the space of about 10 years in which I, I tried to say, you know, with the newspaper in one hand and Mark's Gospel in the other hand, how, how do we make sense of things both personally and politically? Yeah. Uh, since, since that time, I've tried to now drill down on particular aspects. So, um, quote a book on economic discipleship um, in 2001 called Biblical Vision of Sabbath Economics, Um, a book on restorative justice and peacemaking and nonviolence in 2009 called Ambassadors of Reconciliation, and a book on immigrant justice um, in 2012. And finally in 2016, a a book on uh, what we call watershed discipleship, which is um, a, a book about... Uh, eco justice um so you know trying trying to apply okay here's here's what i think this means around this set of issues here's what i think this means around this set of issues all of these books have been smaller books more readable books um uh trying to invite folks to think and act together around particular core issues facing us uh in these historical moments and most recently, uh, my wife and I just finished, uh, actually today we're sending off the manuscript, um, of a book on decolonization, which, uh, is looking at, uh, how our, our peoples and our histories and our places are all haunted by the, the most ancient violations on this continent, namely the genocide against indigenous people. Yeah, no kidding. So, you know, we, we, uh, we, we simply are trying to do our work, both on ourselves and in the social context that we're in. Always trying to apply uh, gospel faith, um, working at the intersection of the personal and political, and and that's what we we try to do at Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries is is to resource folk to um, to actually practice um, radical discipleship and to do that both through thinking through theory and theology and ethics um, but also how to uh, engage in in movements for change uh, <clears throat> so you know writing books is good but in um, fleshing our convictions uh, in in this in the space what we call the space between the seminary the sanctuary and the streets um, that's even better
0: yeah no I agree Um you know, in in and, and to that end I know people can, you know, hang out with you and grab your time and, and, and mentor with you and you know, one of the things I wanted to talk with you about was spiritual direction. Um the uh you know, obviously we're dealing with a practice, spiritual direction as a whole that you know, we're talking third, fourth century. A lot of people, uh you know, nowadays, particularly in the evangelical community, consider it an esoteric practice that doesn't have too much you know, balls to it, or centering to it, or or it's new age. Um, you know, my one of my main missions is to kind of help spiritual direction become a tool, um, not only for our church communities. And you know, I know in large part there's a few denominations that really, really go after it and have over the centuries. But you know, you know, for lack of a better understanding, trying to make spiritual direction cool. <laughs> so. Um, you know, that's one of my deals. How, how do you see spiritual direction in, uh, practice, um, either in your community? And, and again, I don't, you, you know, I, it's funny because people will go, well, spiritual direction is different everywhere. And I'll go, well, no. Um, cause what we're doing is we're really concentrating on listening, you know, deeply to one another to really find those movements of God. Um, how do you, how are you, or how do you see that reflectively within your community, with your work or just other communities as a whole?
1: Well, of course we typically get pigeonholed as the, uh, social justice geeks or the overly politicized people. And (laughs) so people imagine that we don't care about the other stuff. And, um, that is, is not the case. I have personally benefited profoundly from both uh, the therapeutic arts, um, family systems, um, practice, and theory is really important to how I understand uh, the self as well as society, um, and also through spiritual direction. Uh, So we we run an annual institute, usually anywhere between 100 and 150 people come to uh, talk about some specific social issues through the lens of of Scripture. And uh, we always have both chaplains and spiritual directors um, who are part of that gathering who uh, meet with folks one-on-one throughout the time. Sometimes it's people working on 12 steps. Sometimes it's folks just um, talking about their spiritual life or their prayer life. Um, Sometimes it's folks wrestling with relationships. Um, All of that. Hugely important. Uh, many of many of our colleagues are trained in, in spiritual direction. Uh, we think spiritual direction is an <clears throat> essential tool, both to um, find our center and to maintain our center in the midst of both personal uh, change and political turmoil. Uh, and <clears throat> having said that. I think um, both the therapeutic arts and spiritual direction um, need to be careful to not be completely colonized by this um, white culture of um, talking to ourselves. Talk Mm. therapy, right? Right, right. So so prominent in white culture and, and spiritual direction oftentimes tends to be a lot of talk therapy now people need accompaniment right people need companionship Uh, folks are profoundly uh, lonely existentially isolated and having another individual be a good listener and be a good interrogator is hugely important but ultimately spiritual direction is about moving from the head and the heart um, to the the feet and the hands, yeah and and it, it is important that spiritual direction um, not be uh, strictly neutral about decisions that people need to make, and we need to help uh, accompany people into practices um, that are not just personal practices but also social practices. So I would love to see spiritual directors talk more about how middle-class people are um, captive to uh, their stuff and their illusions of economic security. I would love to see spiritual directors talk more with folks about um, white fragility in the face of um, black and brown demands for justice. Mm. I would love to see spiritual directors, cult folks, work through um, all the moves to innocence that white people make um, in times of social upheaval. Uh, you know, hey, this is not my issue or it's not my fault or doesn't have nothing to do with me yeah. Um, yeah. or what can one person do or all the ways in which we try to exonerate ourselves rather than seeing ourselves as part of larger systems. So I'm, I'm a big fan of spiritual direction. Um, I'm a bigger fan of spiritual direction that is integrated with a certain amount of social analysis and consciousness so that we can overcome the huge dichotomy in our culture between the private and the public. Does that make any sense?
0: No, that's that's fantastic. As you were talking, I was thinking there's this wonderful line in uh, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous where Bill Wilson, the, one of the founders of Alcoholics Anonymous, says, have a head in the clouds and your feet on the ground and um i just i love that idea the challenge that spiritual directors take uh into the lives of those they're directing with this idea of practice and practice justice uh practice love practice compassion practice and you like you know whatever you want to put in there um one of the things that also came up as you were talking was this idea and i got it you know i pretty much uh, say to this mountain you have a a list if you will um, about about privilege or about the, you know, you ask people questions, you know, based on their lives to really illustrate privilege, but that idea of practice really is central to spiritual direction because, again, like, for people who think it's esoteric and we're just going to kick the can a little bit on personal issues, I would totally agree with you that it, it does come down to, to really moving. I, lo- I also like the practicality of it, and, and I don't know, you know, and maybe you can speak to this, but there has to be a practicality, uh, you know, to things that are of spiritual nature. Like, it's like if I'm just sitting in the woods smoking dope, with my legs crossed, I don't, I don't find too much satisfaction from that. And I find that most evangelical Christians kind of believe that's what's going on when we start tapping the deeper things of ourselves. How do you, how do you see practical, how, how do you teach that practicality, or what's the best way to? You know, instruct practicality in somebody's spiritual life. Yeah.
1: So you're bringing up the the question of pedagogy, and and I think that is key. Um, <clears throat> part of the limitation of talk therapy is, you know, we're we're sitting across from each other in in a safe room, or we're online with each other, and we're we're talking and we're listening, and that's that's good. But more traditional forms of pedagogy, right, the term pedagogy, as you know, means um, walking together and, you know, wrestling through issues as you walk, right? It's an ancient notion, and you certainly see it in Jesus, right? He teaches his disciples as they're walking into shit storms of opposition, right. um, as they're crossing storms, as they're um, facing uh, rejection. He's kind of using these object lessons of conflict, and um, sometimes pointing to nature. But they're moving, right? They're heading from Galilee to Jerusalem. Yeah, they're on yeah. a mission to ultimately confront the roots of their discontent. And and so you know we're we're trying to figure out today what does it mean to to reanimate pedagogy in the traditional sense so for example one of the things we do in our spiritual direction of younger mentees is we will <clears throat> encourage folks to take pilgrimages um, to actually move out of their you know safe spaces or comfort zones and go visit places that are fraught uh, or that are inspiring or that are contested yeah. so we have a, a list of places around north america where we have colleagues in, in communities doing amazing work with the poor amazing work of um uh lifestyle renewal in alternative ways amazing uh resistance to the principalities and powers and we say you know get in your car or get on the bus or hitchhike or whatever and and put yourself in these spaces um, and learn um, by seeing and learn maybe by participating and learn, of course, by talking with people. And we find that, we call it the the pedagogy of pilgrimage, and and we find that that's uh, that's really what changes lives. Um, Now, some churches have experimented with this over the last 50 years in mission trips um, where, again, you take people, you know, to Haiti, or to Mexico, or maybe um, to Louisiana, um, and that's and that could be good as long as it is framed in in, in a uh, in a contextual like okay, this is what you're seeing, this is why you're seeing it, this is what it means, as opposed to this uh, white savior saying that we're going to go build houses for poor people and we're never going to actually learn why they're poor. Um, so so we do think that the the pedagogy of pilgrimage is, is key, and I'd like to see that be more um, central to the toolbox of spiritual direction. We find that that's, uh, that's really important. So for me, um, w- when I was 21, uh, you know, I wasn't raised in the church, I became a Christian at age 18, um, but I sure wasn't impressed with what I was hearing in the small conservative <laughs> churches. I'm sure. Um, So I hitchhiked across the country to um, live for three months at a community in inner-city Baltimore that was run by uh, radical Protestants and radical Catholics um, who were living among the poor and speaking out against um, U.S. military policies. And um, one early morning, one of the things the community did was it went to uh, dumpsters and dumpster dive back back in the day. A lot of historians think they invented it but it's been going on a long time. And uh, so so here we are and I'm I'm a Californian so it's I'm treating my ass off in this dumpster with Philip Berrigan, this this radical priest, actually a, a historic figure, the first person ever in the history of the US, first Catholic priest to be arrested for protesting war during the Vietnam era. Um, and he's just grizzled old Irish Catholic um, and we're sitting in the dumpster um, sorting through these rotting, you know, zucchinis and um, suddenly whirls around and and looks at me and says, um, (coughs) uh, where where is hope? He said, you know, and I'm thinking, Oh my God. uh, What does he mean? Where, where is Christian hope? Um, You know, and I, I'm suddenly wishing I was back on the West Coast. You know, um, you know, where is Christian hope? Maybe I could talk about what Christian hope is. So I'm hemming and I'm hawing and I'm trying to search for a
2: prized tomato. And he starts in, you know, oh, a lot of Christians, he says, leaning against the dumpster, think there's hope in ritual or prayer or pious behavior, and most of them believe ultimately hope is in heaven. They're just waiting for a ticket out of this madhouse so that they can. Take it easy in the street, by and by.
1: Um, and, he, and he goes on, right? He starts on this rant about, you know, highfalutin rhetoric from pulpits and nice talk by Christians who do as they please.
2: He says, "I'm gonna get hope when you're ignoring all the violence and poverty and justice." I'll tell you how he barks. And I'm thinking, "Oh, great! You know, I'm I'm stuck in a dumpster with freaking Amos the Prophet." You know, and I just kind of want to become one with the composting eggplant. He says, you don't see it because you're living in the suburbs and driving a nice car to a nice office where your hope doesn't hide out from the contradictions in your or your society, doesn't insulate itself from the desperation of the
0: Hope hope is yeah, where your ass is. Hope is where hope your ass is. Where you know, that, that's, so
1: that's uh, God bless Berrigan a blessed memory. He uh he taught me this and it's it's been very very central to trying to integrate uh practice and
2: spirituality and faith and conviction.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's um you're you telling that story uh, literally brings tears to my eyes because I think we all have a fill in our lives. Mine was a dock worker from Cleveland, Ohio, named Tommy Cusick, who uh, about did the same thing for me when I was 18 years old. I wasn't in a dumpster. I was uh, sitting next to him very begrudgingly in a Catholic church that he had it, 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 uh, in, insisted I go to and pray with him. And when I uh, decided to to give him shit during uh, his prayer time, he quickly slapped me in the side of the neck so hard that I saw I saw next week. <laughs> and um, he would always tell me, he would always say, he would say, John, the most powerful thing you could ever pray would be Jesus. That's the only thing. And he would say that to me all the time, and I never knew what the hell he understood until later on in my life. But my God, what a great story. How much do you miss that guy? I mean, that guy you probably miss so much. Yeah,
1: and that's where part of the culture of church we're trying to reconstruct is one that um, has a social ecology of intergenerationality and ancestry, um, that that there is a genealogy of faith that's bigger and deeper than your denomination or your personal family history. Um, we, we are who we are because other people have struggled to be faithful, um, some famous, some forgotten, some we know, others we don't. But for the ones we know who who have been that guiding hand, it's important that we have a um, a consciousness of that genealogy, that we honor that genealogy, uh, <clears throat> and that uh, and that we figure out ways to to live in consciousness of what scripture calls the cloud of witnesses that surround wow. us yeah um saints and, and martyrs and, and prophets um, and including the the people who have been real in our lives uh so we we work hard in our at in our institutes we always have elders um and we honor them and we have them come and just sit and be elders um we we work with a lot of Younger folk, everybody seems younger to me right now, but, um, we, we work with a lot of 20 and 30 and 40 somethings. And, uh, what most folks like that don't have in their lives are, are elders. Um, they, they oftentimes don't, don't
2: have their own grandparents. Um, they, uh, they don't have people
1: of that generation as they do. they, They don't know how to talk to them. And, you know, human life is constructed ecologically to be intergenerational. We're supposed to have old people and young people. It's just healthier. Um, And we, you know, our churches are actually one of the last places left in society where there's a modicum of intergenerationality, but we don't employ it. We don't recognize it um, more than in rather trivializing ways on, on mother's day or whatever. Um, And I think if we, um, took a cue from more traditional societies and saw how precious our, our elders are, um, and, and make conscious space for them to, to tell stories, uh, and to be listeners rather than be shuttled into old folks homes. Um, we'd, we'd be in, in better shape. And our churches are one of the last places where I think we could actually have a chance to do that. Uh, so when hipsters bail out of church, Well, you know, you you think you're going to construct an alternative culture and an intergenerational social structure um, overnight in your lifetime? No, you don't. You don't invent culture. Um, Culture is older and wiser than we are, and we have to figure out how to rebuild culture and not just invent
0: culture so good so so damn good thank you for that um we're we're running out of time here and i want to make sure that we go back and talk real quickly about the project that you guys sounds like you're mailing off today um do you guys have a working title for the new book and give us a snapshot of what we're gonna read here
1: yeah thanks we hope it'll be out by the end of the year the title is healing haunted histories A Settler Discipleship of Decolonization, and it tackles the oldest and deepest injustice on the continent, violations which inhabit every intersection of settler and indigenous worlds, past and present, wounds that are inextricably woven into the fabric of our personal and political lives. And in the book, we try to build capacity for healing those wounds through decolonization as an inward and outward journey. So we look at issues of indigenous justice and settler responsibility through the lens of my wife's Mennonite family narrative. Mm. And we trace what we call landlines, bloodlines, and song lines oh, cool. um, from the Ukrainian steppes to the Canadian prairies to the California chaparral. In the case of her clan's immigrant travails and trauma, their settler unknowing and complicity, traditions of resilience and conscience. Uh, So it's sort of part memoir, part social historical theological analysis, and part practical workbook, because we're inviting the reader to look at their own um, landlines and bloodlines and songlines to find out how their people have settled on this land and what it means to understand those histories and landscapes and communities and how we're haunted by the continuing history of indigenous dispossession dispossession. Um, how do we transform our colonizing self-perceptions, lifeways, and structures today? And most importantly, how do we practice restorative solidarity with indigenous communities today? So we're, we're really excited. It's a, it's a major piece of work. Um, we think it'll be a good uh, sort of primer and catechism for folks um who really want to dive deep into um both their their own um formation and deformation uh and you know how how to really embrace um a different world that that we need to build because ours um is uh
0: falling apart rapidly (laughs) yeah Uh, to say the least right well I uh, I look I look forward I look really really forward to that I mean that's uh, that's exciting if people want to hang out with you uh, share your vibe uh, just you know sit under some of your great mentorship and teaching where can they go to tap in very quickly
1: yeah, we've got two websites. One is chedmeyers dot org. Uh, the other is um, BCM, uh, standing for Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries. BCM netorg net org, and there you'll you'll be able to access um, resources and podcasts, um, and also um, books, publications. Uh, you'll be able to find your way to our annual institute that happens every February out here in the ventura river watershed um always welcome uh new folks to to come and try to figure out your discipleship between seminary sanctuary streets and soil so appreciate the the opportunity jr to to talk to your to talk to your crew and want to encourage you to continue with your holistic spiritual direction practice it's much needed and uh Hope we can cross paths
0: down the road. Yeah, we will. And on a personal note, uh Ched, your work has I mean, my God, um just been very, very uh transformational for me. Um, you know, I have uh I've m i have have a wife twenty six years, we have three adopted kids and everyone in that family uh, <laughs> knows knows you uh, through my study of you and your work. So we appreciate we appreciate it very very much in all the things that you've handed down and all the things that you will hand down. So appreciate this time very much, Chet. Thank you.
1: Thanks for the time and um,
2: strength and courage and clarity in the days ahead.
0: Big big thanks to uh, Chet Myers. Maybe he's maybe he's not. Uh, Steven Tyler. Maybe he's more David Bowie of the theological landscape. Maybe that's what it is. I think uh, that's just where I'm going to go. I'm going to go with David Bowie. Maybe he wouldn't rock a podium back and forth. Maybe he would just like, you know, like grab a spotlight and just be like stare you right in the front row and just be like something intellectual and something great spiritual and your guts would get all, <laughs> I don't know. Big thanks to Chad. Thank you so much. Yo, Ched's huge, massive pilgrimage point, though, for me. I don't know about you, man, but what is your pilgrimage? Where are you at? What's your pilgrimage? You go into a new city. You go into a new state. You go into a new, uh, you know, how about you go to your neighbor, man? How about your pilgrimage be your neighbor? The guy next door that you haven't said hello to. How about that guy, right? Or maybe your pilgrimage is, the, is to God himself. Maybe you've walked away. Maybe you've shut that shit down and you're looking for a new thing. Maybe you say hello to the divine and see what happens. Either way, what a great challenge by Ched Myers. Uh, Go to all his business, uh, Ched Myers. Uh, It's all over the place. Just Google. Google Ched. First name is C-H-E-D. And M... What is it? What is it? I don't want to jack it up. It's M-Y-E-R-S. Ched Myers. All over the place. Been super, super helpful. Hey, I'm jrjrman.com. J-R-J-R-M-A-H-O-N.com. If you need a spiritual director, I'm your man. I'm your, I'm your person. I won't put identity on it. I'm a spiritual director. <laughs> Jed says he's a five on the, uh, on the Enneagram. Hey, anybody want to guess what I am? <laughs> I'm not a five. <laughs> I love you good people. I appreciate everybody on this journey. And, uh, man... Next week What the hell are we going to do next week I don't know what the hell we're going to do next week But we'll figure it out Love you all See you bye